You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. It has been said that stubbornness, I'm sorry, perseverance is stubbornness with a purpose. I'll say that again. It's been said that perseverance is stubbornness with a purpose. Now, being stubborn is obviously not always a good thing, but it's not always a bad thing either, is it? I mean, what, what, what really matters in the end is what are you stubborn about? Because if we focus our stubbornness onto the right things, it can be incredibly powerful because it means that we don't give up when things get hard, but we push through. My wife isn't here today, so I get to say whatever I want about her. Um, when she was young, her mom, who is from Peru, her mom used to call her a stubborn little Indian. I told her I was going to tell you guys this, so it's okay. But uh, now that we have kids of our own, you know, we can see streaks of that same stubbornness in them. And I'm pretty sure all the stubbornness in my children comes from my wife's side. But our prayer for our kids, our prayer for them isn't that they wouldn't be stubborn. You know that? That's not our prayer for our kids. Our prayer isn't that they wouldn't be stubborn. Our prayer is that their stubbornness would be focused, that God would take hold of that stubbornness that's in them, and that he would focus it onto something good, onto something that matters, and that it would be a great asset to them rather than a liability. You know, the history of the world is full of great accomplishments, which resulted from stubborn people, people who stubbornly refused to give up in the face of difficulty, who refused to give up in the face of setbacks, you know, from Thomas Edison trying 10,000 different ways to create a light bulb, to people who stubbornly search year after year for cures for diseases. Here in the book of Acts, we're going to see that same dynamic at work amongst the early Christians. We're going to pick up our story in chapter 14, and just to give you some background in case you're just joining us for the first time, here in chapter 14, we pick up during the first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas have been sent out by the church in Antioch on this missionary journey to go and to evangelize, preach the gospel in places where it hasn't been heard, and to make disciples of Jesus, and to put them in churches, and to start churches. And uh, what we're going to see is is that what characterized this this first missionary journey for these people was this. It was stubbornness with a purpose, perseverance. And we're going to see in our study today how these first missionaries, they faced incredible setbacks and difficulties. But in the end, what they did, it changed lives. It ultimately changed the world. And why were they able to do that? Well, here's why. Because they were stubborn with a purpose. And I believe it's true, really, that anything that's worth doing is hard. Anything that's really worth doing is hard. But what motivation is there then for us to be stubborn in all the right ways? That's what we're going to be talking about today here in Acts chapter 14. The title of today's message is Through Many Tribulations. And here's what we're going to see in this chapter just for you guys who like outlines. We're going to see fickle friends. And then we're going to talk about getting stoned for Jesus. I'll explain what I mean by that. And then we're going to talk about the reason to persevere. Okay, so number one, fickle friends. So far in this missionary journey, I've got a map up here for you. You can see they were sent out, Paul and Barnabas and a few companions, they're sent out from Antioch in Syria, which is over there on the the coast of the Mediterranean. They first went to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas was originally from. And last week we saw this. Paul came down with some kind of ailment, some kind, it seems like he had a tropical illness, which led to them having to leave Cyprus and going up to modern-day Turkey to the region of Galatia because of that region's high altitude and dry climate, which was better for Paul's health and helped him recover. This is the same region of Galatia, by the way, to which Paul would one day write 
one of his epistles, one of the New Testament books that we have, the letter to the Galatians. And that letter was written from Paul to the new Christians in this region who belonged to the churches that he had established during this first missionary journey that we're reading about today. Excuse me. <coughs> so last week we saw Paul and Barnabas, and they went to a city called Antioch in Pisidia. Antioch was a common city name. It's a different city than the one they started out in. They went to Antioch in Pisidia, and they preached the gospel there. Many people believed, including many Gentiles, but the Jewish religious leaders of the city, they didn't like it that the Gentiles were being welcomed in. They stirred up an angry mob, and they drove Paul and Barnabas out of the city. They chased them out of town. And at the end of chapter 13, it says that Paul and Barnabas, they left Antioch in Pisidia and they went to another city in that same region of Galatia, which is called Iconium. And that's where we pick up the story today in chapter 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. You know, the regular strategy of Paul and Barnabas, whenever they come to a new town, was that they find the Jewish synagogue where they know they'll get an audience, they'll have a platform to speak, and they start there telling people about Jesus. They preach the gospel first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Now here in Iconium, we read that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. They embraced the gospel. They put their faith in Jesus. But verse 2, it says this, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. The city of Iconium was divided. We read this in verse 4. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Now there are two reasons why the city of Iconium was divided. One was a good reason. The other was not a good reason. It was a bad reason. The first reason the city was divided was a good reason. Iconium was divided because of the gospel. Some people embraced the gospel and devoted their lives to following Jesus. But other people rejected the gospel and said they didn't want to follow Jesus. And that kind of division isn't necessarily bad. It's actually inherent to the nature of the gospel. The gospel is such a strong point. It's, such, it's a fork in the road. It compels you to make a decision. Which way are you going to go? Are you going to follow Jesus? How will you regard him? How will you, will you respond to him? The decision will have profound implications, whichever you decide. So it is like a fork in the road with the gospel. So that is a good reason for division in the city. But the second reason that the city was divided was not a good reason. Iconium was divided, we read in verse 2, because certain people poisoned the minds of other people against Paul and Barnabas. They poisoned their minds. Clearly, this was done with their words. Now, isn't this a vivid picture of what speech can do? What slanderous or negative speech about people does to the mind? It poisons the mind. Well, you might say, oh, you know, I'm just sharing my thoughts. I'm just venting my frustrations a little bit. I'm just talking. It's totally harmless. Well, here's what we see here, that speech is clearly not harmless. It's not neutral. As we see here, words can affect and poison the mind. And, as, and the result, as we see here, is that the people were divided. You know, words are incredibly powerful. Words have started movements. Words have started wars. The, the book of Proverbs says this, that life and death are in the power of the tongue. 
The New Testament book of James, it says that the tongue, although it is one of our smallest members of our body, it it wields incredible power, like a small spark that can light an entire forest on fire. That's how powerful words are. With the same tongues, we bless God, and with those same tongues, we curse people who are made in the image of God. That's what James says. He says it should not be so. Out Out of our mouths can come words which heal and give life. And out of our mouths can come words which poison and cause death. And that's why James gives such a strong warning about how we use our words. Look at what happened to Paul and Barnabas. Some people went around and poisoned the minds of other people against them. Now let me ask you this. Has that ever happened to you? That you heard something, someone said something to you about somebody else, and in a way it poisoned your mind against that person. It changed the way you felt about them, the way you thought about them, the way that you perceived them completely. All because of what somebody said about them, which may or may not have even been true. It might have been completely biased or not the whole story, but nevertheless, it poisoned your mind against that person. I want to encourage you, be intentional and be thoughtful about the words that you use. And not only that, be intentional and thoughtful about the words that you listen to. Paul the Apostle would later write this to the Ephesians. He would say this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up and as fits the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. Now what an incredible contrast. Do you guys get that contrast? What an incredible contrast. Either your words can give grace or they can poison the mind. Do you see, that's, that's hugely different. That's very powerful. May we be those who speak words which give life and build up. Fickle friends, right? That's what we're talking about. This is one of the things that Paul and Barnabas had to face on this missionary journey. It's something that was surely very difficult, very uh, harmful, very discouraging to them. When they first came to this city, many people embraced them. Many people embraced their message. But because of these people who went around saying these poisonous words against them, many of those same people who had at first embraced Paul and Barnabas are now turning against them. Maybe you know what it feels like to have fickle friends, people who have turned against you. I'll tell you, it's not a good feeling, right? Many of you know that. But check out what it says in verse 3. I absolutely love this. It says this, Therefore, They stayed there a long time. They stayed there a long time. Now think about this. They're being attacked. They're being opposed. People are going around slandering them, defaming them. And verse 5 tells us that, uh, the next verse tells us that people were plotting to murder them. It was heavy. It was difficult. And so what did they do? They decided that we're going to stay here a long time, right? People are saying bad things about us. People are trying to kill us. We're just going to stay for a while. That shows us that Paul and Barnabas were men of perseverance. They had a special kind of stubborn, right? Remember when they had first come to this place, they had come here for the purpose of making disciples of Jesus and establishing a church in this city. And I believe that there's a sense in which Paul and Barnabas felt, hey, if it is this hard to be a Christian in this city, if there's this much opposition and it's this hard, then we better stay here a long time so that we can give the Christians here a good foundation. So that after we leave, they're going to be able to continue walking with Jesus in the face of opposition because it's an inhospitable place to be a Christian here. I love how stubborn they were. It's hard. There's opposition. Some people don't like us. Some people want us gone. So we're going to stay here as long as we possibly can. I love that perseverance. I love that they taught that to the early Christians. They were stubborn with a purpose. They said, you know what? This matters. Let me ask you, what are the things in your life that really matter? They say, this matters. And even though it's hard, we're not going to give up. We're not going to go somewhere easier. We're not just going to look for the easy way out. In fact, we're going to stay here as long as we possibly can. 
Let's continue on from verse 5. When an attempt was made both by the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet and he sprang up and began walking. Paul and Barnabas were used by God to do many miraculous things. But Paul and Barnabas, I love this fact that it says there that they went there to do what? Not to do miracles. They went there to preach the gospel. More than anything, Paul and Barnabas viewed themselves not as workers of miracles. They viewed themselves as preachers of the gospel. And sometimes when they were preaching the gospel, God would move in powerful ways. Amazing things would happen. People would be healed who had been crippled from birth. Now check out what happens next. I think this is one of the funniest things in the book of Acts. I'm going to take a drink. Hang on. says in verse 11, and when the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. It seems that this miracle of healing made a big impression on these people, didn't it? I mean, they start saying to each other in their own local language, they say, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. This miracle of healing takes place, and their conclusion is that Paul and Barnabas must be gods. Now, why would they think this? Interestingly, and this is confirmed by uh, archaeological finds and ancient writings, interestingly, in the city of Lystra, there was a local legend, and this is what the legend said, that in the city of Lystra, generations before, the gods, Zeus and Hermes, had paid them a visit undercover in the appearance of men, but nobody in the city had welcomed them, no one had showed them any kindness or hospitality, no one invited them to stay at their home or, or gave them any kindness except for one elderly couple. So what did Zeus and Hermes do? They wiped out the whole city. They killed everybody except for the elderly couple. This was the local folklore in this town of Lystra. So when Paul and Barnabas show up and this man's healed, everybody's immediate thought is, this must be the gods coming down to us in the likeness of men, just like that time they did years ago when Zeus and Hermes came to us before. And we all know that how that turned out, right? So we don't want to make that mistake again. No, this time we're going to bend over backwards to make sure that we don't do that. We're going to roll out the red carpet for these gods who've come in the likeness of men so that we can welcome them into our town. Now, try to imagine what this must have been like for Paul and Barnabas. Here they are preaching about Jesus. Somebody gets healed, and the people get super excited, and everyone's speaking to each other in this language, which they don't understand. Paul and Barnabas, they speak Greek, which is the trade language. Everybody speaks it, but amongst each other, the Lyconians have their own local dialect and language that Paul and Barnabas don't understand. I don't know if you've ever been in, a, you know, you've gone out of the country or you've been in a situation here in the U.S. where everybody around you is speaking in a different language. They're just kind of jabbering away and everybody's really happy and excited. And so you don't know what's going on, but you say, hey, uh, awesome, great. We're all happy. We're all excited, right? So Paul and Barnabas are here, and they, they see the people are excited. The people are dancing, you know, they're bringing out flowers, and now they're going to get this bull and leading it down the hill, and all of a sudden it clicks in their minds what's going on. 
These people think that they're gods, and they're going to sacrifice a bull to them. This is beyond just normal kindness and hospitality. This is really going too far. So verse 14, read with me. It says this. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments, and they rushed out into the crowd crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from sacrificing them. So when Paul and Barnabas realize what's going on, they tear their clothes. This is a common Middle Eastern expression of grief. Paul and Barnabas are grieved by the idea that these people would worship them as gods. This is just blasphemy. And, and here they are trying to turn people to Jesus, and instead of turning to Jesus, these people are worshiping them, and they say, no, stop, this is wrong. The people are probably, you know, you can imagine Paul and Barnabas probably shouting these words to this crowd of people trying to calm them down. And they say this, you need to turn from these vain things, from these useless things, and turn to the living God. What a great explanation of what repentance and faith is all about, isn't it? Turn from these vain things. Turn from these useless things and turn to the living God. Turning from useless things, that's repentance. Turning to God, that's faith. The two go together. In order to turn your focus and your life to the living God, you have to turn away from certain useless things. You can only turn your face in one direction at a time. You, you, you can't turn towards one thing unless you turn away from something else. And that's what Paul is telling them here. It's a message that I believe all of us need to hear. Turn away from these useless things and turn to the living God. That's what repentance and faith is all about. But even still, we read they had a hard time restraining the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. You can imagine Paul and Barnabas, they had no place finding a, they had no problem finding a place to stay that night. Everybody wanted to house them. You know what I mean? People are thinking, these guys must be Zeus and Hermes. We better treat them great or else they're going to kill us all. So look at what happens next in verse 19. But Jews from Antioch and Iconium came and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now remember, what we're seeing in this section is fickle friends. And think about this. The same people who the day before loved Paul, they adored Paul, they tried to worship Paul as a god. Now just a short time later, having been influenced, their minds poisoned by these Jews from Antioch and Iconium, here they are literally throwing rocks at Paul in order to kill him. I mean, people can be so fickle, can't they? I mean, how many of you have felt the pain of being hurt by people who you thought were friends but turned against you? I'll tell you what, there's no one who knows more about the fickleness of people than Jesus Christ. The, the, the man who, uh, as he came into the city of Jerusalem, they welcomed him saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They welcomed him as the king and the Messiah. They laid down palm branches for him to come into the city as their king and as their Messiah. But many of those same people, the same crowds, that same week on Friday, five days later, those same people were shouting, crucify him. Jesus' friends, the ones who promised that they would rather die than ever turn their backs on Jesus, when pressure came, they forsook him. How incredibly discouraging that would be 
But I want you to notice this. What was the reaction of Jesus? Did he say, fine, if you're going to treat me that way, well, then just forget it. No, Jesus remained faithful even to those who were faithless. He served those who had forsaken him. He loved those who sinned against him. And he gave his life in order to redeem them. And he does the same for us despite the fickleness of our faith at times. And this brings us to the next section, which is this, getting stoned for Jesus. Read with me verse 19 one more time. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe. You know, stoning was a pretty reliable form of execution. You didn't have a lot of misfires. You basically just throw rocks at somebody until they start moving. And then maybe you throw a couple more just to be sure. It was an incredibly brutal form of execution. And so you can imagine a guy like Paul having just been stoned to death. I mean, he, he's in bad shape. Broken bones, blood, he's probably missing teeth. He's probably in really bad shape. The people thought that he was dead, and they dragged his lifeless body out of the city. And by the way, this is where they would dump the trash. They would take it outside the walls of the city, and they just dump it out there. And so they leave Paul's body on a garbage heap. And the disciples, the Christians... Some of them probably part of the missionary team. Some of them new converts to Christianity. They gather around Paul's body, no doubt praying for him, setting his bones, mending his wounds. And I love what Paul does here in Lystra. Having just been stoned, dragged out of the city, left for dead on a garbage heap, what does he do next? He gets up and he walks right back into the city. That takes a special kind of stubborn. Just try to get this picture. I mean, this guy's got broken bones probably. He's hobbling, he's bloody, he's hurting, and he walks right back into the city, down the main street of the city. Can you imagine the looks on the faces of the people of Lystra when they see this man who they just tried to kill walking right back into their town? The guy they worshiped as a god and then stoned almost to death, and here he is walking down the street. Talk about perseverance. I mean, he's, he's not going to run away as a man full of fear. He's going to show the people of Lystra, he's going to show the new Christians that nothing is going to stop him, that he's a man called by God, and nothing's going to stop him, not them, not even this. Interestingly, we do know of some people in the city of Lystra who did embrace the gospel and become Christians. A church was founded here. In fact, we know of one young man in particular who was converted through Paul's ministry. Do you know who he was? His name was Timothy. Timothy was from Lystra. And Timothy was converted through Paul's ministry in Lystra. Now later on, Timothy's gonna become Paul's protege. He's gonna end up joining Paul on these missionary journeys. Eventually, Timothy will become a pastor and Paul will write two letters to him which are in our New Testaments, First and Second Timothy. Paul will refer to Timothy as his son in the faith. Timothy was from Lystra. And I want you to think about this. Think about what kind of amazing impact this must have had on a young man like Timothy to see Paul the Apostle come to this town, preach about the love of God and the hope of the gospel, be stoned, dragged out of the city, and then get up and walk right back into town, right back into the city, the city he had come to to tell them about the love of God and the salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. What kind of impression do you think that left on Timothy about what a Christian's attitude is towards life and mission? I bet it had a very profound impact on him. This is the same Paul who would later write to the Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. If you don't know how to follow Jesus, just imitate me. Now, some of, some of you might find that 
sentiment a little bit off-putting, right? Like, who does this guy think he is that he would say, hey, if you don't know how to follow Jesus, just follow me around and you'll know how to follow Jesus, right? Like, who does this guy think he is? But here's the facts. Truly, that's how most people learn, not just by instructions about what they should do, but they need to see it modeled. They need to see it lived out. They need to see what it looks like in practice. How do you walk with God? How do you repent of your sins and come back and receive grace? How do you be a Christian in your workplace? How are you a Christian in your home? How does it affect your home life and your friends and family? And how do you deal with people who aren't Christians? This is one of the reasons why Christian community is so incredibly important. And for Timothy, a young man, a new Christian, it must have been incredibly impacting to see Paul the Apostle stoned to the point of death, get up and walk right back into town, unbroken, undeterred from this mission of sharing with people the good news of Jesus Christ and the love of God. Verse 20, it says this, the next day Paul and Barnabas went to Derbe. And it says this, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned. After leaving Lystra, they went to another city, also in the region of Galatia, Derby, and it says they preached the gospel and made many disciples. I want you to just notice this, that Paul and Barnabas, their mission here wasn't just to make converts, their mission was ultimately to make disciples. You can be a convert to Christianity in just a moment, that's all it takes. Maybe even some of you have come in here this morning and, and you need to make that step and you need to become a convert to Christianity. It can happen in a moment, you can receive God's grace and be forgiven and, and be given new life and eternal life. But discipleship is a lifelong process. Conversion can happen in a moment, but discipleship is a way of life. It's a way of following Jesus and allowing the gospel to affect and change every aspect of your life and living all that out. That ultimately was the mission that Jesus called his followers to, to go into all the world and not just make converts, but to make disciples. And this brings us to the third thing we see here in this chapter, and that's this, the reason to persevere. You know, it's been said that if you ever feel like quitting, you should remember why you started. If you ever feel like quitting, this is what you need to do. Remember why you started. Think about it. Verse 21, we read this. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You'll notice this on the map, that they leave Derby, and then there's kind of this squiggly line that leads back to all the cities they've already been to. Now, why why'd they do that? Well, here, they were returning to the places where they had established communities of Christians. They went back there to strengthen those Christians in their faith. And this shows us once again, their priority was not only making converts, their priority was making disciples. They had a passion for preaching the gospel where it hadn't been preached before, but they also had a passion for going back to the churches they had founded and strengthening people and equipping them as very best they could. They went back to these places and we read this. They strengthened the souls of the disciples and they encouraged them to continue in their faith. They appointed elders in every church. They commissioned those elders to lead and oversee, to pastor and shepherd the people in those places and look over their spiritual health. You know, for the early Christians, church was not a secondary thing. It was not a cursory thing that you can kind of take it or leave it. It was central to the life of the Christian. And the mission's efforts, as we see here, they were very much focused on planting churches that could become self-sustaining and self-propagating. 
where believers could worship and grow and learn and encourage each other and build community, which is so important for discipleship. Maybe there are some of you here today, and you need to be strengthened in your soul. You need to be encouraged not to give up, to continue in the faith. Let me remind you of this again. If you ever feel like giving up, remember why you started in the first place. Why did you come to Jesus, those of you who are already Christians? The feeling, what are those feelings you had when you first understood the gospel, when you really got that it was true, not only in general, but it was true for you, that you could be forgiven, you could be made right with God, that you could be made new. It's no small thing to walk with the Lord year after year, trial after trial, and it helps to regularly remember why you started in the first place. Verse 22, read this. It says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and check this out, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. What was the message with which Paul sought to strengthen the believers? What was the message through which he sought to encourage them in their faith? Here it is. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And you're like, wait a second, that was the encouragement? It sounds like a bucket of cold water. It sounds like kind of a downer, right? Like, it's going to be hard, but we'll get there, right? I mean, this is the message that's supposed to strengthen their souls and encourage them, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. How is that encouraging at all? Well, let me explain how it's encouraging. When you really understand the gospel, you know what it does in your mind? It kind of creates an if this, then that type of mentality. If this than that. If this is true, then that must be true. If it's true that there is a God, if it's true that I was lost and by Jesus I've been redeemed, if it's true that eternity is real, if it's true that this life is really just incredibly short compared to the eternal life that awaits me because of Jesus, if it's true that apart from Jesus there's no hope and no salvation, if it's true, if all this is true, then what? If this is true, then what does it mean for me practically in how I live, in how I spend my time, in how I spend my money? If there is a God, if eternity is real, then all this is just temporary, isn't it? And if Jesus redeemed me, then I'm going to live with him forever. And if that's true, then what? Then how does it change my life? If that's true, then why would I live a life focused on my own comfort? Why would I live a life focused on my own pleasure? If that's true, then I'm going to live my life focused on things that really matter. And you know what matters in the end? Two things, God and people. You realize that nothing else lasts. Everything else is temporary. God and people, those things last forever. And if that's true, then I can persevere through any tribulation because I'm going to enter the kingdom of God. If that's true, then I can take on a few extra tribulations for the sake of other people because I'm going to enter the kingdom of God. And maybe through my life, I can help some other people do that as well. Do you see? This is the reason for perseverance. It's all related to hope. It's rooted in the promise that, that gives us perspective. The kingdom of God, that puts everything in perspective. That perspective is what leads Paul and Barnabas to leave their homes, to leave their jobs, to disadvantage themselves financially, to go on this journey where they're going to face constant opposition and attacks and not give up, to get stoned to the point of death and walk right back into the city, to get chased out of town and then come back into town only a few weeks later and then do it all over again. You see, they were driven by this perspective, the hope of the gospel, the promise of the kingdom of God. That puts all tribulation in perspective. And that was the message that was important for these new believers to understand and to hear, that the promise of the gospel is not a promise of a problem-free life. 
Do you know that? The hope of the gospel is not a problem-free life. There are going to be tribulations. There may be many tribulations. The promise of the gospel is something much bigger than a problem-free life. The promise of the gospel is that because of Jesus, you can enter the kingdom of God. And this is the message with Paul, which Paul and Barnabas used to strengthen the brethren and encourage them in the faith. He reminded them of the finish line. And Paul and Barnabas lived this, right? They weren't just speaking from an ivory tower of comfort and, and easiness. They, they were men who had laid it all on the line. And they were stubborn with a purpose. And their strength to persevere came from an understanding of the gospel, which put everything else in perspective. It helped them not to give up, even in the face of many tribulations. Now, we'll finish with this. How did this first missionary journey end? Verse 24. They passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Do you remember how the first journey began? The church began... the. Church in Antioch was praying. They were seeking God. The Holy Spirit directed them. Send out Paul and Barnabas to preach the gospel, to disciple, to plant churches. And that's what they did. It says that they fulfilled their mission. What a great sense of, sense of comfort and accomplishment there comes with knowing that you've done what God called you to do. God did a great work, didn't he? Yes, absolutely. This trip was a big success, wasn't it? Absolutely. But wasn't it filled with a lot of difficulty? Isn't it just filled with problem after problem? I mean, first, Paul and Barnabas run into this guy named Elymas who gives him all kinds of trouble in, in uh, Cyprus. And then Paul gets this malarial fever that almost kills him. And so they got to go up to the mountains. And then John Mark deserts them right at the time when they really need some help. And Paul's sick. Then they get driven out of Antioch. They get, they try to, people try to murder them in Iconium. In Lystra, they, they stone Paul almost to the point of death. He barely survives. How did they persevere in these moments when things were hard and they felt like giving up? Here's how. They thought about why they started. That's what it brings us back to here in the end, isn't it? They remembered what God had called them to do. They remembered what was important, why this whole thing was important. They remembered the hope of the gospel and the promise of the kingdom of God. And that's where they got the power to persevere. That's why they could be so incredibly stubborn, refusing to give up even in the face of great difficulty. When they felt like giving up, they thought about why they started and they remembered the finish line. It was that perspective that made Paul and Barnabas unstoppable. And that same perspective belongs to us as well in the gospel. Let me ask you this, what would it take to stop you? What would it take to get you to back down from following Jesus or doing what God has called you to do? Would it take a little bit of adversity in your life? Would it take the siren call of success in some area? The first thing I'd like you to, or the final thing I'd like to leave you with as we talk about perseverance is this. Nothing could stop Jesus. He's the one who persevered the greatest. Nothing could stop Jesus from doing what God had called him to do on your behalf. When you think about being unstoppable, I don't want you to think primarily of Paul and Barnabas, and I don't want you to think primarily about yourself. Here's what I want you to think about, that Jesus Christ persevered for you, that no amount of tribulation, difficulty, adversity, or suffering could stop Jesus from doing and accomplishing all that God had called him to do for you, taking your sins upon himself on the cross. I want you to take an honest look at your life and consider the importance of perseverance. But even more than that, much more importantly than that, I'd like to focus your attention on Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, that he persevered for you. It's because he wouldn't be stopped that you and I can be rescued from sin and shame and enter the kingdom of God. 
This is the message that Paul and Barnabas preached. Salvation is in Jesus Christ. Put your eyes on him. He is the unstoppable one, and through him you can persevere too and do whatever he has called you to do and, who he has, and be who he has called you to be. Perseverance is stubbornness with a purpose. The last thing I'll say is this. Not all forms of stubbornness are good though, right? I mean, some, some is, some are. Uh, some stubbornness is good. But in fact, for some people, maybe even some of you here, Stubbornness is what keeps you from coming to God. Stubbornness is what keeps you from doing what God wants you to do. Uh, Stubbornness keeps you from embracing the gospel or doing what God wants you to do in a particular situation. Maybe there are some of you here today, you know what God wants you to do. Maybe there's a relationship. You need to ask forgiveness. You need to seek reconciliation. But your own stubbornness is keeping you from doing what God wants you to do. Maybe you've heard the gospel and you know what God wants you to do, to turn from vain things and useless things and turn to the living God. Let me encourage you, do not let your stubbornness keep you from God's purposes and desire for your life. Let your stubbornness be focused by God onto a purpose, by the power of God within you, that you might persevere in whatever he has called you to do, no matter what this life might throw at you. Because even if through many tribulations... Because of Jesus, you can enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. And we thank you, Jesus, that you persevered for us. Thank you that you loved us that way. Lord, we today just dedicate ourselves to you. Lord, may we be perseverant for you. Lord, may may we persevere and may we focus our stubbornness. Give us a special kind of stubbornness that we need to follow you even in the face of adversity or to do what you've called us to do in some area, even though it's not easy. Lord, thank you that you persevered for us, that there's nothing that could stop you from doing what you had come to do for us. So we bless your name this morning. We pray that this message of the gospel would stick in our hearts and our minds as we go from this place and that it would affect and enliven and instruct every area of our lives from work to family to everything else. We bless you, Lord. Thank you for who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution Series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.